On this week's episode of the Shut Up and Build Bikes podcast, I share my interview with Stephen Belinke of Belinke Cycle Works in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. My name is Joe Roganbuck. I own Cobra Frame Building, and so I'm based out of Syracuse, New York, and I design and then CNC machine, produce and sell uh, tools that are for the small scale, sort of custom artisanal bicycle frame builder. And uh, so I make a tube bender that does a wide variety of tubes uh, in bicycle frames. I also make some mitering tools and some brazing tools, and I have a lot more stuff in the works too. And so uh, in addition to producing these tools and, and, and that sort of thing, I also have a YouTube channel uh, where I, you know, demonstrate different shop-related stuff and uh, demo my tools and how you might, you know, make a bike, how I go about doing that sort of shop work. And I do this podcast uh, every week where I interview somebody in the bike frame building world, right? And so this is the 20th episode. I'm really proud to say that I've done 20 episodes with a lot of my favorite frame builders in the industry, and I uh, plan to continue to do a whole bunch more. And this week I have Stephen Belinke, uh, which is really cool. Uh, he is so far, out of all the guests that I've interviewed, uh, he started building custom bike frames the soonest. I think he started in 1983 or 1984 with his first bikes. And, um, you know, it's just really cool because not only has he been building for a very long time, he's built a ton of bikes. He really knows what he's doing in the shop. Uh, he's a fixture of the bicycle industry. But also, uh, in 2008, uh, he and some other folks started the Philly Bike Expo. And now his daughter, Bina Belinke, owns and runs that show. I interviewed her uh, like a, a couple months ago or a month or so ago. And uh, I'm proud of that interview. And um, I'm really glad to get him on the show now, too, uh, to get his perspective about frame building and also about how that show got started. Um, you know, he, he was known for a long time for his tandems. Uh, I think nowadays he does more of a wide variety of, uh, of bikes, I think still including some tandems and then a lot of single frames. Um, but yeah, quite a bit of variety to them. He's really known for his steel fillet brazing. Uh, Belinky also produced uh, a lot of titanium frames and they do a lot of like SNS coupler retrofits. So if you want to be able to split your diamond frame bike in half so that you can fit all of the pieces into a travel suitcase with SNS couplers, uh, you can mail it off to Belinky Cycle Works and they will provide that service, I believe. Um, so it's really cool to get him on the show. Uh, when I when I was interviewing him, I asked him to sort of start at the start. And uh, so where we cut into the interview here, he's talking a little bit about um, in the 70s and late 60s where he was, you know, as a teenager working in bike shops. And, uh, you know, the way, the way that he found his way into frame building, of course, is a lot different then uh, nowadays, everybody sort of knows about frame building. There's trade shows, there's information on the internet, there's forums, there's Instagram community. But back then, uh, it was a very different thing. And so I don't think he set out to be a frame builder uh, way before it happened. I think there was a series of events that led to him inevitably, eventually deciding that he needed to make some bikes. And so it's really cool to hear that development uh, and about how he sort of figured out how to do these things in the relative dark without, without a lot of uh, access to good information. Anyway, so, you know, I basically was the guy in the shop that, like, handled derailers and, like, the bikes that were coming in. So, you know, I had started there. It was already, like, late 60s. But as I, like, moved along, I became more of, like, the main mechanic and, like, you know, even the manager. And then the bike boom kind of came upon us. Mm -hmm. And so I went along for the ride and studied all that. So basically not wanting Schwinn bikes, but wanting all these other exotic bikes that I didn't have that I could see just got me into like, the, you know, the European lightweight bike. Mm -hmm. I didn't think I was, you know, that's what I want to build. But those were like the bikes I saw, I, you know, I was uh, in love with. Mm -hmm. And as part of being part of that bike uh, shop, I got to go to the New York bike show. So, so there I was like surrounded by the, the whole world market of you know, Italian and English, et cetera. You this know, would have been like your, mid seventies. Yeah. Like very early seventies. Wow. So earth day came and went. And so basically I became like the bike expert and like all the, everybody, all the kids who like wanted to buy a bike and you know, my high school buddies, junior high school buddies, 
uh, I was like the concierge service. Mm-hmm. Um, so even the, so even though the shop I worked in didn't sell all these things, you know, we would like travel to other shops and find them. And that's what happened to me. I didn't even buy my bike from the shop I worked at. I had to buy it from this other shop, uh, <laughs> to get that Dawes. And so in all these things, there was always like a glimpse in the Schwinn shop was like the glimpses of the, the Schwinn Paramount parts in the catalog. When I went to this other guy's shop, he was like more of like a tourist and like uh, kind of like the real thing. And he talked about oh, how him and his buddies would go to the track and ride. Mm-hmm. Um, and oh, and then like up on this rack, he had like some different things. And it was like, well, what's that bike with the kind of, you know, lumpy fenders and like, look at those racks and all that. Well, it happened to be a Jack Taylor touring bike. Wow. And he goes, he goes, Oh, that's like, Oh, that's a real touring bike. And, you know, obviously my eyes were coming out of my head and just seeing that thing <laughs> and the, like, uh, vertical dropout. So, like, you know, what now would be, like, just pass for, like, oh, yeah, everybody has those features. Then, of course, that was, like, just so different than what I was used to. And so that just got me more nuts about hand-built bikes. Mm-hmm. So, you know, a bunch of touring and college and all kinds of things, I wound up going back into the bike business and opening like a repair shop. And so as part of this repair shop, my thing was, I'm not selling new bikes. I'm just fixing bikes. And so it was like no bike left behind kind of thing, mm-hmm. um, which meant that I had to get into like bending and that kind of stuff. And then in like bending or whatever, bending things back into shape, yeah. which I got from my like old boss. I mean, like, he was from the cruiser bikes. And so like kids would beat, beat the crap out of those bikes and they would come to the shop and he would do all kinds of things like bend back fork blades, bend back mm-hmm. steering columns, you know, pull things out of seat stays. And so all that kind of stuck with me. And in fact, like when things went really got a really bad job and it was like, Oh, that's going to need welding. We'd like drive over to some guy he knew at this like fab shop who could like weld stuff together. Yeah. So I took all that and it's like, oh, well, that's how I want to do things. But I applied it to like all these like, you know, lightweight 10 speeds and things that were coming in my door uh, in my shop in the like, it was already late 70s. And so I was basically, I called it the bike doctor. So, you know, my, my thing was, <laughs> you know, saving all, saving all bike souls. Mm-hmm. And so that led me into like, you know, fixing things with a torch and then having a torch that led to brazons to make modifications mm-hmm. and then modifications led to like getting like an airbrush and like spraying, uh, doing spray paint uh, yeah. out the back of my shop. And so basically after doing that for a little while, um, I moved up and like created a, uh, retail shop and I sold like, both some interesting brands like Bianchi and Dave Moulton and Santana Tandems. And I brought in like the first specialized stump jumper wow, uh, and that kind of stuff, you know, when they were like $750 and it had like TA cranks and motorcycle brake levers. And, <laughs> you know, so I basically was there at the like takeoff of that. And that got me into between my torch and my paint and like seeing like some new mountain bikes. It's like, Oh, well, I'm really into like a commuter bike and these mountain bikes were kind of heavy. So I made a commuter bike out of like, uh, I think it was either a Miata or some other like Japanese frame. And so I was like modifying frames to create like a custom bike. Uh, what I was doing was kind of like a super high end Raleigh three speed with 700 C wheels. Mm-hmm. And so that was my first bike model. And I, met a guy at the uh, New York bike show who was from England. They were making frames in small quantity. And at that time, you know, it's like, Oh, well you could figure out what spec you want and they'll make it for you. And the prices were right. I guess the English pound was right. So I had these like Metro five frames made in England and I would like build them up with Sturmy Archer alloy, five speed hubs and the whole, the whole raft of like, what I considered cool parts to make a bike that would be a great city bike compared to these big knobby tired mountain bikes. Well, um, what you call it? Uh, Bicing magazine 
they did a review of the bike and it it outdid the other five bikes one of them being a trek and i don't remember and that's something fuji but they were all mountain bikes and you know mine was picked like oh this is like the best commuter bike Mm -hmm. of the batch and that so led to people like writing to me from all over the country this is when you had like letters on paper and so i'd get these letters and i started having these bikes made but after a couple of you know a couple of first batches specs weren't really coming out good also alignment was really terrible and then other kinds of quality control and i said to myself the only way i'm gonna be able to make these bikes is to like make them myself mm-hmm. and all along i'd like uh, dabbled in all the various industrial art stuff from like junior high shop and high school shop. And even in college, I took a, what's called farm shop practices, which was basically how to like set up and run your own farm repair shop, which mm-hmm. also got to, into fabrication and machining. So like anything could be repaired and anything could be made, you know, in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. So that was like my foundation of all that. I even like went on like even postgraduate from college. I took a Votech class uh, in welding. Mm-hmm. And then when I was in, you know, running that repair shop and then my bike shop and I started getting into these frame modifications, somehow I got the idea I needed to know more about machining. So I took like uh, a machining um, Votech class um that you know people were coming like various uh people were, like trying to get basically people were like really out to get jobs i wasn't out to get a job i wanted to know <laughs> more about how to like machine yeah and that. so that like you know opened up a whole new world to me um and uh so with all that some guy once walked into my shop you know because i was sort of like well how am i going to like get all this together because I don't really have any machines. Mm-hmm. I kind of know what to do and I have some skills, but I don't really have a sense. But this guy came in the shop who was really into like, oh, the bikes I was making with the hubs and basically ordered a bike. And then it turned out, it's like, oh, well, I have a, I have a machine shop and we do this. And we make this stuff for the government, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, oh, we could help you out with this. So basically like my first several years, which, you know, seemed like a really long time now, of course, in the, whole realm of things it was a pretty short period of time but i used to go to this guy's shop with my station wagon (laughs) and cut like half a dozen tandem frame sets and like a couple of singles and i would do all the machining on this guy's bridgeport and milwaukee Mm -hmm. in you know as like a commuter and put it all back in my car and like bring it back to the shop and at, at that point i did like one shop that used to be in the back of this heat treatment factory. I rented space there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is why I had the bike shop at the same time. And after a little bit longer, I said, well, I'm really not into running a bike shop. I don't really like just selling bikes. I to like build this up. So I took a loan and bought a spring booth and a, um, what you call it, a bike machinery, hydrant jig, mm-hmm. and a few other things. Because like, oh, I was selling these commuter bikes and I was also like getting people were coming in the shop that were like, well, basically women who couldn't find bikes. I was small and I couldn't find bikes. I didn't get into that whole point, but that kind of led me into the, you know, what was also missing in the world of frames was like bikes that could fit me and various women that I was like taking shopping. And one of the first things would be like, we see a model bike. I was like, well, what's the smallest frame that comes in? Mm-hmm. And like, you know, lo and behold, a lot, most things stopped at 21 inches. If you got lucky, there was like 20 and a half inches, mm-hmm. um, you know, maybe 50 centimeters, 51 centimeters or something like that. But, you know, things were limited. Yeah. Um, and so that was a big push for like, oh, there must be like, you know, I started like ordering a couple bikes from Bob Jackson. So, you know, I had my thing for like English bikes. Because mm-hmm. I had like different, um, you know, the Jack Taylors, the Bob Jacksons, um, Ron Cooper. And so that was my first love. But then I did some bike racing. And so we'd go to these races and all of a sudden, like some guy came by with this Mozzie. Mm-hmm. And of course, that blew my mind. So 
you know, I didn't say, say, Oh, I want to make them. But like, once I got into that world of like, Oh, I was making like this custom commuter bike and having to make frames. Like those were the things I looked back to that like, Oh yeah, that that's what I'm aspiring to. Mm -hmm. And so just kept making things and eventually moved to a shop and got in another round of financing where I could like buy, I couldn't, for some reason, I didn't see a Bridgeport I liked, but I saw this index. Mm -hmm. And somebody said, oh, well, index, that's really good. So I just wound up getting this index mill, which has served me well. And in a Milwaukee, like they had at that shop and a whole handful of other things and a compressor. And so I was really like on my way, so to speak. When was um, the, the first bike that you made in, you know, with your own welding and from your own tubes and stuff? Was that like early 80s? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Cool. Yeah, it'd be like '84. And when did you uh, <clears throat> when did you start making tandems? Like '84 and a half. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. Like some, uh, like somebody said. Well, um, I don't. You know, basically, custom people were like showing up at my shop because they heard, you know, what I did, and so I was like, well, I really want a tandem. Um, I was already like doing some tandems, like from Santana. Mm-hmm. Uh, and ordering some custom from there. And I was ordering some other custom tandem frames from like other manufacturers and from England and, you know, obviously not being completely happy. Um, but I was really like cultivating like a tan, like I saw like tandems were something like, well, there's nobody hardly making these things. Mm -hmm. And then there's, you could get singles, but so it wasn't long after I was like, you know, making the singles and had to set up with the, with the paint booth and all. And like some guy said, well, I really want a tandem. And I was like, my first tandem and I just kind of like, <laughs> you know, went further than I had before. And like, I'll just say, I figured it out because, <laughs> because I even had to make this adapter where I like, well, I'm going to put this one tandem on my single bike alignment table, but I'm going to like make an adapter to like fit the front eccentric and then do this half. I couldn't even tell you. The main thing was I used tubes that were like one piece for the like lateral and the top tube. Mm -hmm. um, don't know exactly what put that idea in my mind, but you know, the idea is like, well, if I can machine these things straight, that will help, you know, put the bike together. Cause all I had was the single bike jig. I didn't really have an attachment, mm -hmm. um, but I made an attachment. to like put the two shells together. So, you know, based the idea was like, well, I could get this keel together with these two shells and get everything in plane. I could then build up from there and, you know, do the back end and do the front end with an adapter onto this Italian jig. And you can imagine, you know, what I went through, but <laughs> I did wind up with a, with a tandem and it had these like fancy, like head lug bilaminates. Wow. And cause you know, I just was into like a certain amount of lug work and, um, but I went to bigger top tube and lateral. So, you know, there wasn't a lug for that. And, uh, I was modifying these, fancy i can't remember the the model one of the hayden lugs that had these like nice windows and little points they were kind of nervex x-esque mm -hmm. but they weren't nervex and um i would fit them to like this head tube and then cut the back off you know so i could work with like the bigger top tubes and the sloping top yeah. tube etc um so anyway somehow i took a model of that to the like New York bike show. Cause you know, I basically went back and, you know, followed my roots and said, well, now I'm in the bike business. I need to get a booth at the New York bike show. Mm -hmm. Um, which I did. And I took these tandems and some like dealer from California came by and like, well, he had some whole story cause he like, it was in like 1994 bicycle guide. I think it was 94 that they did this tandem review and we were in this guy, this dealer said, Oh, this is the, this is the Mercedes of tandems. You know, that was like mm -hmm. the quote and like, Oh, if you want to get a tandem, you want to get a Rolex, not a Timex. Anyway, he gave it like a big thing and he loved these lug things. And so I was like, I had to repeat that, <laughs> you know? So that became like a trademark thing for a while. It like, Oh, every bike that we made for this guy in California had to have that. Um, mm -hmm. cause it was different than Santana, et cetera. And so for a short, for a certain period of time, I was one of the bigger 
Cannon Makers because it was basically Santana, Richie, and what was the third one? I don't know. It was pretty small. You know, it was pre-co-motion, pre-burly, mm-hmm. and um, you know, nobody was really making that many, but um, I was like the second biggest tandem maker or something for like a couple of years. Um, so, you know, that got into like, uh, well, a building a crew up and, you know, getting like methodologies down and like repeating and like dividing up the work into like, you know, different workstations and who did what. And then I had this guy come work for me who actually used to work for Burley. Um, and he told me about their four workstation thing, how they could build a tandem uh, in four stations from like tubing to a finished thing. And each station was only 45 minutes. Wow. <laughs> but, you know, they were pretty like slapdash, you know, they were completely the other end of what I consider like a handmade bike. But mm-hmm. interesting, they were doing that in Oregon. And that just had me, you know, kind of, I guess, um, trying to achieve you know, a more production oriented thing. Although I was doing fillet braising, everything I did was fillet braising. And I was, uh, it got down to where it's like, I was just kind of standing in my area when I was standing in it. But basically my thing, I was just like be fillet braising, you know, half a dozen or eight of these things a week. And then other people were doing other parts of it. And I was doing some like the finish, like hand finishing, certain amount of hand finishing. Another guy was doing a lot of that. And so, you know, trying to achieve like a production thing with like a fillet braze tandem. <laughs> where you're, where you're and, sm- fully smoothing the fillets. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's and crazy. then somewhere along the line, because I was brazing a lot of them, you know, I came up with this concept. I was like, wow, one of the biggest slowdowns is all the finishing. And so the fillets are looking pretty good. And what if we did like next to nothing and put on like this powder coat finish that was like, you know, a variegated finish? Mm-hmm. And then we had another thing with the painting was like, oh, well, we'll do this like marbleized paint thing. And you do that on these, these bikes and these fillers like, oh, you don't really need to do all that grinding. So that was our like sort of production level fillet braised bike, mm-hmm. um, which we then, you know, kind of moved over to like mountain bikes and touring bikes, which I can give you that part of the story, but we probably should move on. Um, <laughs> is uh, I went to, there was another show. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, basically there was this like, you know, going to shows is something I always did, like, from the very, very earliest times. And it was this, like, way that you, you know, basically got, like, the big information of the year. Mm-hmm. You know, because, like, well, what was the new things? What was that? It's like, things didn't happen, like, every three weeks, like, here, like, mm-hmm. now. Yeah. Uh, you know, things would happen, like, oh, well, what's going to happen this year? And then you go to the show and you find out what's going to happen and who had what and what new ideas. And so, like, the whole curve of... of events was like stretched out and you know you'd wait for a magazine and see pictures and maybe new things came out or reviews um but obviously the whole information flow which i guess you're you're probably one of the questions is like well what's different about frame building now than, than yeah then? and and of course that's it you know it's all in one word the internet yeah um but you know doing all these shows um in these early days of my business, I went to the inner bike in Atlantic city and, um, and maybe it was Philly. I don't remember for this one, but anyway, Scott nickel was there and, you know, he had heard, that's right. He was the other big tandem maker. So mm-hmm. it was like Ibis, Santana, Richie and me. Mm-hmm. And so he, Scott, you know, knew of me. And of course I know him and he was like selling the Ibis tandem. And that was like, kind of like getting some traction. And he goes, Oh, uh, you can't, you know, you can't be doing any kind of production thing unless you like weld them. And I was just like, really like, it was like a real letdown. Because mm-hmm. it's like, oh, don't like, it's like, he just gave me this business advice. Like, the only way you're going to survive is if you like make welded tandems, you know, forget about this fillet raising. Mm-hmm. And of course, I was just so deflated on that. You know, and, uh, I've seen at least one video <laughs> clip of you fillet braze, and the way that I learned was a pretty slow technique, and the way that I saw you doing mm-hmm. it, you were cruising. You were laying it down pretty fast, and uh, I, would, yeah. I would love to learn that technique. The, the, I took a, a frame building class with Doug Faddock, and his, ins- his mm-hmm. instructor, Herbie Helm, gave us a lesson, 
and it was mm-hmm. it, it was a pretty good result you get in the end. I think it was pretty smooth, but um, it was very slow. It was like a head and back, and you know, taking your time and smoothing yeah, it. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. My thing is like, well, just like like TIG welding. My thing is, I'm using I'm using a blazing torch and moving quick and track yeah. about travel yeah. and feed. You know, melting, changing from solid to liquid, sucking up heat, uh-huh. and so that's what I want to do. And I want to I want it to like happen. You know. You know, just about instantly yeah and so it's more of an in and out and a move along and the and as you get better you'd like not move in and out as much you just kind of like move ahead yeah uh and moving the frame so those are like you know i guess some of the like main tricks of that trade um, yeah, so, so the point is like you can put down a shape and like you know if people aren't all that fussy about it and it looks pretty good you could just you know powder coat it or paint it and move on mm-hmm. when it uh do you do the, I believe I've seen you do a class with Carl for Metal Guru where you teach fillet bracing, am I correct? Correct, yeah, we do like a, a brace frame, but like Carl doesn't want to get into like lugs at all. Yeah. And maybe some other day there'll be something for that, but that's like, we can do a fillet brace class and it's not too far off of what he does as like a TIG welded bike. Mm-hmm. So he's like, A, he's comfortable, B, it doesn't really take as long. Mm-hmm. Yeah, certainly. I and would, then, I would and love then, to take uh, that class someday. And then the students, if they're, you know, depending how anal they want to get about, they can, like, take the bike home and, like, continue to, like, hand finish it or file it or get whatever. We do finishing there. We usually never get as quite as far as I hope. You know, we spend more time on the brazing than we do on the, than the finishing. Yeah. Um, but uh, in terms of, like overall time, it's like you can get a bike done in our eight day class. That like if it was going to be a lug frame, probably not. Yeah, yeah. No, that's cool though, because I I think there are not that many people who have done as many brass fillets as you have probably done on bike frames and mm-hmm. you're teaching. So mm-hmm. if you're going to learn from somebody, uh, you know, it'd be really cool to be able to learn from someone like you who not only can do it well, but has the experience of how to do it quickly and, and all the ways that it can go wrong. Right. And, you know, we put that in like, I would say like a production thing, but you know, it's about, Oh, the overall bike build and how to make it happen. Um, you know, with an emphasis on like the fillet brace skill, but we're also, you know, putting everything in, in terms of like how to machine miter and how to do machine setups and get it in the jig and what kind of prep and how to align along the way and how to like wind up with a finished thing. And of course, avoiding as many of those beginner pitfalls that like most people would fall into if they said, Oh, I think I'll just get some tubes and make a bike at home. Yeah. Yeah. Fillet brazing uh, is, is a, uh, you know, yeah, it's tricky. You can have, I, I see a lot of really bad fillets from people who are trying to figure it out because you know they're cooking the mm-hmm. flux and there's lots of porosity or just not getting the brass to lay down very smooth at all mm-hmm. and um yeah and i had some instruction and when i was starting it wasn't great but like i had a sense of direction at least that i could kind of follow the steps i had learned and it would be really hard to teach that to yourself on your own was that hard for you to learn brass fillet raising you know you had like shop classes but did you ever have anyone look over your shoulder and teach you that skill or you figured it out? No, that was the thing that was like, you know, that's the other difference of like, you know, then and now the, the, actually even having teachers that had that, I had some mentors, but they were all, um, you know, lug bike builders. Mm-hmm. And so the actual fillet brazing was, uh, well, an, a, a literal trial by fire in that <laughs> I had to like, move on to it to do that first tandem um and then when there was a demand for tandems and that was the only way i could make sense of how to do it you know because the few lugs that were available the designs i was making with like the longer back ends and the sloping top tube and the bigger diameter tubes you know didn't allow any of that like european lugs reynolds tube set tandem tube set you know, that wasn't in my wheelhouse. Mm-hmm. And so I was trying to make like a modern tandem. You know, I was using ovalized tubes and the one piece and all that thing and, and uh, pierced um, miters rather than like separate pieces. Mm-hmm. And so getting that whole fillet raised down was, you know, after a certain amount of frames, all of a sudden it started to come together in yeah. terms of uh, 
how to make that happen. And then, you know, just doing a lot of it, how to make it easier to grind. Cause then that was, that was kind of my goal. Like, well, if you can put the shape in with the torch, it's mm-hmm. a lot easier, basically yeah. sculpt it with the torch. And then all you got to do is kind of like follow mostly what you got and maybe take out a few like irregularities or, you know, feather things out from where they touch each other. And you got something that looks as good as like any Richie bike. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so, and you know, he was my mentor, but it's like, I couldn't, there was no like video of Richie of how to do it then. <laughs> um, and there was no way to get that there. And so and that was really like, I knew what I wanted it to look like. Mm-hmm. And it was like, well, how do I get it to look like that? And how do I get it to look like that without, you know, much? I, I have this thing of like, well, it's in some ways, it's kind of easy to make a bike frame. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously it's not easy to make a, you know, let's say a really nice one, but to make one that's not like overworked, basically if you have enough time, you can like fix all the problems and like make all the aesthetics and like, Mm -hmm. and eventually, and that's obviously how I did it. But the idea was like, okay, well now I got what I want, but how do I get it like done in a reasonable amount of time? Yeah. Yeah. And that was, now it's a lot harder because the bikes aren't uniform anymore. You know, basically I got to a certain kind of bike with certain kind of specs and it was like repeatable. Now, you know, the next month you wake up, there's like a different dropout to use. And so it's nothing stays the same. Yeah. And then there's a lot of time going into like thinking through the bike, you know, what, what was like a doable thing, you know, 20 years ago, no longer applies. Yeah. And so the bikes get slow, not so much because they're hard, they're slower to braise or anything. It's just like, there's just so many more decisions and things to deal with. And like the customer requirements, and that's like where the like custom market is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, you know, you mentioned a couple times that you went to the New York Bike Show and you went to an inner bike show long, long time ago. So you, you know, you've been going to some trade shows for quite a long time, and then it would have been two thousand eight or so. Uh, you started to have a feeling that you wanted to create the Philly Bike Expo, and so. You know, uh, your daughter Bina uh, like owns and runs the show now. And when it was beginning, it was it was more of your brainchild. She said when she was on my show, like, what what was it that uh, that you had seen over all these years at different trade shows that that spurred sort of your desire to to create something new and different? Well, I guess there's two things. One was like I'll say the memory of the New York Bike Show as like what was like the gathering place and the dissemination of all the like relevant information. So like all the companies were there, like dealers were there, but like, because of the, like, I guess the setup of like how the world of like bike shops and the bike enthusiasts work, like every bike shop wound up having this whole like cadre of uh, like fans. And so even though it was like, the New York bike show was like a trade show for dealers and, and manufacturers. There is always this giant contingent of like the hanger owners from the bike shop. Mm-hmm. So basically some kind of like people like me, but like every bike shop would have this group of people that like came and basically chewed the fat. Mm-hmm. And so they got to get tickets or, you know, badges or however it worked. And so it's like, Oh, can you get me in the show? Can you get me in the show? And so, the show was a gathering not only of like shops, but of like and mechanics, but like all the people that were really like enthusiastic about bikes, mm-hmm. you know, club people, racers, and uh, that kind of thing. So that was like one part of New York bike show, you know, it was like kind of this like carnival atmosphere and everybody you knew was there. Mm-hmm. Um, and so somewhere in like the mid two thousands, you know, probably, you'll know the date better than me. Um, I ran into this guy, Don Walker at Interbike. Mm-hmm. Well, actually I was pulled over by my coworker, Simon said, Oh, you need to meet this guy. He's got this idea. And he goes, Oh, blah, blah, blah. We're having this show. Do you want to come? And I just kind of like poo pooed the thing. <laughs> it's like, Oh, this is like, uh, you know, I'm here at Interbike. This is like a real bike show. It's like, Oh, you want to go to a bike show with like, you know, 10, guy showing bikes you know mm-hmm. like so it's like oh, what do we need you know we already had business going and it's like it's kind of like the it was it was i guess 
or maybe it was a similar kind of uh, mindset. Like I had this guy come work for me in the late nineties and, you know, I was just going along and doing things. He said, Oh, you really need email. I was, well, what do I need email for? <laughs> and he goes, Oh, well, you know, this is the thing. So it's like, so he's like set up this Mac with this modem and it was like really slow. And I was like, well, what do I do? What am I going to do with all this? And this is like a whole lot of stuff for like so slow and nothing's happening. And, you know, what, what does this got to do with building bikes? And so, you know, and then like, you know, half a year went by. He goes, well, you really need a website. And I go, well, I need a website. What does that do? And, you know, he said, well, we got to do it. And uh, you got to get me a camera, a digital camera. And, you know, we're going to spend this much money, but you'll see. This is what we're going to do. And so, you know, I went from like paper letters and telephone calls. And all of a sudden, you know, within like a two-year period, it's like, People are sending emails and people are looking at the internet and like looking at the website, buying things. And it's like, Oh, well we need to get all the specs updated and we need to do this and do that. And so like that whole thing of like information and like putting out, you know, what your product and like seeing what the other products are. And like all of a sudden there was like worldwide marketplace. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, when this, and so I still like, Oh shows, but that's where you like see the real thing and like talk to real people. And yeah. so, you know, I kind of kept that going. And so in this, I heard about this like hand built bike show, like, well, I built bikes, but it's like, it didn't seem like, like a really great idea. Cause it was kind of like limited, mm-hmm. but two years later, well, then like the next year I went to like, Oh, there was this gathering of, um, what's called Cirque to cyclism. And mm-hmm. so it was like, oh, we need to go there. And so we did. And like, oh, all of a sudden there was like people that are really like into the hand-built bike thing. And it was like, oh, well, here's where the real consumers are. I was kind of selling to like, I'll say more like recreational people. Mm-hmm. that just like wanted a bike that like worked or fit and wanted uh, a tandem. And whereas like uh, this whole gathering of people that were like really into the particulars of, you know, how it was made and how it looks and how it compares to other things. I was like, oh, okay, this kind of makes sense. And then, of course, we won an award or two and we went back the next year. And then it was like, oh, I guess I got to go see this bike show in California. And so the first year I went to NAVS, we basically just went to, like, look around. Mm-hmm. And, you know, here was this guy, Vanilla, with this tricycle and there was Bruce Gordon, who was like one of my, you know, heroes mm-hmm. and uh, like all these different guys that like at different points uh, along the way, um, you know, I'd looked at their work or, you know, would read the articles. But like here they were in the flesh. Mm-hmm. Like a lot of these little guys weren't going to Enderbike anymore and they mm-hmm. weren't coming east to the East Coast Enderbike. So it was like all of a sudden one place was like always like amazing bikes and of course you know there was a certain competitive spirit and like different people were like coming out with new ideas and there was manufacturers who had stuff on there and it was like okay i guess this is where we need to be um i won't backtrack to how we like went from like making tandems into like because i had a my whole business plan was like we don't make single bikes you Mm -hmm. know and i did that i had a like we don't make single bikes for like six or seven years you know i wasn't even interested in single bikes and then so something happened bicycling wanted to do a review and i thought they were going to do the tandem they said no we want a touring bike and uh so i was like well i guess bicycling they want a touring bike that's really gonna do what they want because we want to be in bicycling and so that led to like you know this really cool uh, integrated touring bike with racks and fenders and lights and uh and we made the racks and so, you know, it did real well in the article and that led to a whole bunch of business. And I think in that article was like Bontrager was in that particular issue. It was like five builders or six builders. I was Bontrager. I think it was Weigel. Um, I have to find it. And, uh, and Bob Jackson. So they had like kind of like a, you know, so there's like all these heroes from like different e- of different eras of mine were all in this one article and I was in this article and I was like, that was kind of like this big game changer mm-hmm. in the mid nineties. And then all of a sudden I'm like, Oh, tandems, something I do, but like all of a sudden people want single bikes mm-hmm. and you know, they wanted, they wanted custom touring bikes. So it's like at that time, 
the mid nineties, like, Oh, all this like racing stuff was happening. And like the big companies really weren't making touring bikes. So in a way it was another one of those like specialty niches that like I could fill that wasn't being filled by the big manufacturers. So anyway, fast forward to like another 10 years and going to nabs and looking around and saying, well, I guess we got to do this. So like I went back the next year in, uh, to San Jose and, um, and then we did, we, you know, dragged out a whole bunch of stuff and we showed and it was like, Oh, this was, this was great. And this is where the people are. And I guess this is where the market's going. So that led to like, well, I guess we'll go back again next year, which I'm not sure where next year was. It might've been Portland. Um, uh, I forget the order. Someone mm-hmm. could correct me, but whatever the order was, we went to Portland uh, and we went to Indianapolis and then whatever the year was, it's like, well, the whole idea is like, Oh, now I'm just going to be uh, on the West coast and it's going to be in the middle and then it's going to be on the East coast. And so when the like year came, like, Oh, he's finally going to come to the East coast. I created this like really involved letter to Don. Um, and it was like, why they should have this show in Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. You know, cause like all this like bike culture was like, was happening all around. And, you know, we were pretty like stoked up about bikes and commuter bikes and urban bikes and hand built bikes and cargo bikes. Uh, and so, and, and it was happening here on the East coast. And if you're going to come to the East coast, like come to like Philly or Boston or maybe even, Baltimore, but mm-hmm. obviously my pick was like, well, have it come to Philly because oh, we got great public transportation and we got all these trails and we got all these bike shops and we got all these like, we had like a real legacy of like bike people from like the bike racing days and the mountain bike days and uh, obviously we just have a lot of concentration because there's a lot of people in like this megalopolis that goes from like Washington to you know, above New York city. So like come to Philly, which is in the middle. And I had a whole bunch of like good reasons mm-hmm. to come to Philly. And he picked, I guess it was the year he picked Richmond, um, <laughs> as an East coast city. No, yeah. Not um, quite the, the location you would assume. Right. So it was sort of like at the tail end bottom. And of course we went there and all that, but it was like, after like reading all the, like basically after laying out all these reasons, you know, it was pretty involved, yeah. um, you know, demographically and all you, this, cause I was trying to make a case. Yeah. And where you had maybe failed to Philly. convince him, you were sort of convincing yourself that, that Philly right. really did so need to host the show. It was like, well, wait a minute. This sounds like the right place to do it. And like, he's not going to do it. So let's, we'll do it. Mm-hmm. And so basically, you know, I had a team of people at the shop, and it was like, okay, you know, here's one guy who's going to work on marketing and here's another guy I work on this. And I had this idea and I like approached the bicycle coalition and they like hooked me up with somebody there that was like their events person. Uh, and she was like super organized and like knew how to put events together. Mm-hmm. And we knew we were, we had already like been putting on the junkyard cross race for a few years. So we sort of had this like thing of like how to market and how to get people interested in something. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it's like, well, it was like Spanky and our gang, let's put on a show. And so we just said we would. And like, we found a place that was this armory that's on 23rd street. And I was like, well, how much is that? And I'm like, what does that take? And so we just took this flyer. It's like, well, it's like $13,000, but if we do this, this, and this, we could like cover it. Um, you know, we didn't know how we were going to cover it cause we didn't have anything, but we started <laughs> in like March and we, you know, we picked the fall instead of the spring. So it wouldn't be the same time as nabs and some other things. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we did it like later after inter after interbike Las Vegas, you know, already people were like, Oh, Las Vegas. And, you know, a lot of people weren't real happy with Las Vegas. Yeah. So, we just, like I said, it was this kids putting on a show. And so we made all these like out on a limb decisions and lo and behold, the guy who was working for me would like sit on the phone and was calling, you know, all these different people that were like hand-built bikes, apparel companies, and then like component companies. And, you know, we went for like, Hey, we got 10 people signed up. Oh, look, we got 20 people signed up. And then it was like, 
oh, wow, we're almost like half full. And so the first year came, by the time we got to like the time, I think we had like 60 some exhibitors and really the place only had space for maybe 80 or something. Wow. You know, we made a floor plan. We you know did all the things. We found a decorator and, you know, we learned a lot and it was mostly, uh, you know, guerrilla marketing. We got people down from New York. We had a lift swap meet. We had food trucks. So, <clears throat> you know, we knew this thing. We had seminars. We got people to like put on interesting presentations and we had some rides and we did, um, alley cat and, you know, it was basically just, okay, we're going to like throw everything at it. And mm-hmm. It's going to be more of like, you know, celebration of everything cycling, not just like, Oh, we're going to stand around and look at lugs and, and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. You know, we want to sort of like get everybody who is in any way doing something with bicycling yeah. to come to the show. Yeah. I've heard and it so described as our, like more of a consumer facing industry than just like a, an inward facing thing for, for industry and bike shops and frame builders. Right. Yeah. And so that was like the impetus and like, it kind of worked and it was like, you know, cause all of a sudden, like, it was like, well, here we go. And then we had the, the exhibitors and we had this and we got some press and, uh, you know, people had heard of us as a builder. So like, I guess that gave us some like entree into like having them pick up the phone or talk to us or whatever. Mm-hmm. And, um, we convinced them that it was going to happen. And so they came and helped make it happen. And then we said, well, I guess we're going to do it again. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we basically rinse and repeat. Yeah. And uh, when when did Bina start to really get involved in the show? Well, she had been working in the shop um, when she first started college. So she would have already started working in the shop in like 2006. So I think she had already gone to some of the NABs. You know, she went to Denver with me for this like, Denver, you know, we started going to like a few other things. Like there was a Denver or Colorado custom bike show. Mm-hmm. And we went out there. So we started like doing this traveling and she would like help. Cause she was like, Oh, the travel coordinator and the like people coordinator and you know, all the like details that go with this kind of stuff. Yeah. And, um, like we even did like when we did the nabs in, uh, Portland, we did the frame builders express and that was like Bina's project. And I guess that was like, its own little success, you know, kind of small, but we like took the train from Chicago to Portland. And the idea was, Oh, we got as many frame builders to like <laughs> sign on to it. Uh-huh. And then, then other people who were interested in traveling with frame builders and, uh, you know, it was a pretty fun deal. That's awesome. Uh, wish we could like repeat that in some way. Yeah. Um, but, um, so she was already like into the marketing, and working with the the bike shop. So I think when we actually did the 2010 uh, bike expo, she was already down and out of, out of town and co- at college. And so she didn't really do much, but like when she, when it was about to happen, she came in and kind of like helped at the last, you know, at like yeah. putting it on at the last minute. And then the next year did a little bit more and then was involved in like helping to sell the booths, you know, in the second year. Cause the guy who did most of the selling in the first year had like, Oh, he took on a job at Fuji. And mm-hmm. so he wasn't with us anymore. And so she kind of took over like the marketing aspect and, you know, getting the exhibitors. So yeah. I would say pretty much the second year she, that's where she was at and she was doing that somewhat remotely. And, um, and then we kept going and I guess she, she got more involved and it was like the show was actually like outgrowing this armory and like she thought, well, it really should be a better venue. Like mm-hmm. it's just kind of like low end, like the floor was like this, you know, like an unclean concrete and had like <laughs> oil and gas on it. And yeah. The bathrooms were like down in the basement, a little bit dingy and it didn't really have heat. And so like we had like <laughs> one year was like really cold Yeah. and you know, Everybody... when you open the big doors, it's, I hadn't. I, didn't I think go I to the armory. Rafa, I think it was the year Rafa came. Oh yeah. And we finally, like I think third year Rafa came because we were like, oh, we got to get Rafa come. So they finally came and they were up in the front where we were, and uh, it was like the door would be open and it was like freezing, like toward the back it was that. And so like the, the guys like Rafa were in there like I guess some kind of sport coats or something. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and they just looked like they were like a little frail and like just really uncomfortable. Yeah. You know, like a lot of the other people, like, oh, we had beards and like flannel shirts and like wool hats <laughs> on. And like, we kind of knew what was happening. And they came like all kind of like ponied up and uh, they just froze to death and like they never came back. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I always so, would hear that the armory was just so dark. Uh, you know, I, n- I never went before it was at uh, the um, the convention center where it is now, but but people mm-hmm, will always tell stories mm-hmm. about how it was so dark and you, you almost needed a flashlight to see the frame or something. Right. I think, I don't know, we like looked at it, it like, well, what's it going to cost to put lights up? And, you know, just like there was no way to do it. Mm-hmm. So like, I think we'd like, one well, part of the thing is like, well, if you're coming to the show, make sure, you know, bring lights and stuff. Yes. And so, in fact, all the electricity, that was the thing we didn't like have an electric union or any of that stuff. So, you know, we're, we're pretty like bare bones in all the other expenses, even though the like the armory itself was pretty expensive. And then, you know, insurance and a few other things. And the decorator was much, much cheaper because it wasn't a union thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had to like, which I still have a legacy of them is we bought like, you know, rolls and rolls of these like 50 and a hundred foot heavy duty extension cords. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember, and so we'd have to like run them under like, uh, rubber mats and stuff like that and like get electricity to all the aisles. And that kind of thing. So, um, one year, one of my customers who was like really like, you know, one of those guys who could like get his way all like around the gear chart and was like into all the numbers. Mm-hmm. He like signed He like evaluated and analyzed the whole situation, like the whole floor plan and how to like maximize the like extension cords and like where to run them. <laughs> and it was like, yeah. You know, so, you know, a lot of the show was sort of like volunteer help. Yeah. And so, you know, just getting the electricity to all the booths, it was all like handmade. So everything was like low budget <laughs> handmade. And, uh, but like I said, you know, like you said, it was dark, it was dingy, it was cold. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was a kind then then there was an aspect of like, they couldn't, I think the other thing that made it was like, well, you can have, you can get this date, but we can't guarantee it because if like a certain kind of like, uh, any kind of like national or state emergency comes up and we have to mobilize the national guard, then that takes precedence and you won't be able to do the show because <laughs> that's what it is. It was like a national guard thing. There was actually like troop carriers in there and like and wow. jeeps and things. And, uh, so so it would have had a certain degree of like unknown and it was like, well, we can't really, we need to like have a date and then we could get it. So we had a real hard time, I guess the third year getting the date. And then the fourth year was like, Oh, this is the guy who was like, who ran it for them. Wasn't there anymore. And we could see like, this was going to be a problem. So we started like shopping and, you know, Bina was shopping and it was like, well, I guess there's the convention center. And that was like, seemed like the impossible move, but she made that happen. And we figured out like, yo, even though it turned out that the convention center was not that much more, it was like all the stuff that went with it was more, but you know, we didn't quite know all that at the time, but you know, each, each year it kind of like something else comes up in the expense world. And, but then the show gets a little bigger. And so everything's about the same, but it's just bigger, (laughs) you know, from a financial standpoint. Um, but, you know, she took on, because, like, basically keeping the unions at, sort of, like, under control, she was, like, you know, the Iron Maiden. And uh, <laughs> somehow, you know, I you know I could probably, I would never be able to do it. I'm too much of a pacifist. That's um, funny. But she would, she kept them and, you know, kept that together. And then she could handle the financial thing. And, like, I don't know, all the, like, logistics of a, lots and lots of exhibitors from lots of places. So, yeah. okay. It's, it looks like it's going to be your deal because I'm too busy like trying to keep this bike thing together and uh, yeah. you know, it looks like you could do a much better job. And since we don't have the crew we had before, you know, go for it. And so she just kept pushing it and uh, I'm just the man behind the curtain with some ideas. Yeah. No, she does an amazing job. And I think, you know, uh, anyone in the frame building world or anyone who goes to the show that you talk to, always just says, oh, Bina, she's doing an amazing job. That's that's what you hear from everybody. <laughs> everybody really appreciates mm-hmm. what she's doing. And uh, 
yeah, I think she's doing a great job. I would be really proud of her. Uh, um, yeah, and, and and I'm glad that you you got the show rolling too, because um, for me, it's only like four or five hours away, and uh, it's mm-hmm. really convenient to get to. And Nabs just never really comes all the way to the East Coast, I guess, except for the once in Hartford. But um, it's good to have that show over here, and and I appreciate the. Uh, yeah, like the sort of forward-facing element of it. Because I have, you know, I'm a big nerd about frame building, but I have friends who work in bike mm-hmm. shops and stuff who, they like all sorts of bike stuff. And, um, and you know, NAB, or uh, Philly Bike Expo is a good show for that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I wanted to ask you a little bit about Junkyard Cross. Uh, I went just uh-huh. the one year. I think it was the last or the second to last year. And uh, it was uh-huh. a ton of fun. Um, when did you start hosting Junkyard Cross? I'm pretty sure it was 2006. Okay. So, you know, it was kind of like, it kind of was an impetus in this like event and like bike culture and like marketing, uh, you know, both the learning experience for us, but also the actual thing of like, Oh, that there's like other people out there that are ex- excited about biking. And so, you know, kind of working with a crowd and working with an event, you know, help kind of, get us warmed up to the idea of like, Oh, well we could do a show. Yeah. So that's, that's how the junkyard was sort of like the, uh, the learning, uh, it was like the on-ramp whatever. for the, for the whole show. Yeah. The on-ramp. Yeah. Yeah. It was so much fun to go to that. Cause you have a literal junkyard full of whatever cars are in there at that time. And then, you know, you have racers that are, are running through the course the year that I did it, there was like an old, uh, you know, like one ton Chevy van from the eighties with the doors uh-huh. open and you had to, you had yeah, to carry yeah. your bike through it. And, uh, just, Oh man, that's cool. There's all sorts of cool stuff. Uh, and just the energy of those events, um, you know, I right, think right. exceeds even a normal cyclocross, uh, race. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That was right. Cool. I, I, you know, interesting, you know, I guess various cyclocross races have like tried to like, uh, pick up on some of that energy and some of the like gravel rides now just for, mm-hmm. as for like uh, doing some things that are like somewhat outrageous or whatever. So, mm-hmm. and that, you know, basically bringing this fun aspect into biking as opposed to just yeah grinding and, and racing. Yeah, no. And there was one section of the course was like this old, you know, uh, decommissioned payloader that you had to like, there was a runoff yeah. to get up and over the, through the cab yeah. of the payloader or something. Right. And, that was, that was my favorite. Yeah. And then, uh, uh, I guess I'm not sure if it was Lone Wolf or someone else. They had like the blow up doll that they had on the roof and then yeah. they pushed through the cab and it just got really somewhat raunchy and, and fun. <laughs> yeah, no, that was a great time. Uh, is that just, uh, I have to imagine something like that could really be a nightmare in terms of like, um, like insurance and some of those things, right. Just like, uh, to have a show or to have a race like that with any scale. Well, yeah, basically the more you did it, the more we were risking. In fact, we always had this thing. of like, Oh, if somebody gets really hurt, that'll be the last year for this. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, kind of turned out one of the organizers, you know, got hurt in the setup and so that kind of uh kind of put a a damper on it and we we i guess whimpered along and then we had the one year with the single speed world coming to philly so that kind of we kind of co-opted together uh, mm-hmm. for that and then that that actually i think became the last race okay yeah that was the one um, i was at was the single speed world weekend mm-hmm. yeah yeah so the main thing is that the, the, you know, there's a lot of obstacles. There's some big risk. One guy did, I mean, I guess that was the year also when the guy's wheel collapsed on that ramp and yeah, he I took saw a that. real, yeah. really good hit. <laughs> so, you know, that kind of like the reality of like, Oh, the dangers of this. And like that people are getting, people are getting a little more rowdy and like the, yeah. the, the obstacles were getting a little more dangerous. Um, but main thing is because it was beginning more and more successful, the guy who owned the junkyard thought we were getting rich. Oh, and I see. So he like, well, he gave us a hard time one time with like shaking down the other vendors that were at the place. And so that was kind of a bad taste and a bad scene. And like the money, um, you know, the money dividing at the end and basically he thought like, Oh, we made a fortune. 
which really, you know, we didn't really make anything. Yeah. Uh, you know, wound up costing money. But yeah. so in other words, for him to do it, oh, I want to get, you know, X amount of money up front. And so basically that's really what closed it down mm-hmm. was like, oh, this is like, he doesn't really want to cooperate and like do this and yeah. kind of be this like fun party event. It's like, oh, wow. Where are we going to come up with five or 10 grand for this guy in order to like rent his junkyard? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that kind of, that kind of put the end. I mean, when he saw the single speed worlds and there was like basically a little more money from that, there was really no way to repeat that again. Mm-hmm. On like, you know, a grassroots scale that we were doing it at. Yeah. So that just, in a sense, we put ourselves out of business. Yeah. And when you have, uh, when you have an event, I imagine like that, that gets bigger and bigger, um, you could lose the character of it, you know, when it starts and it's more of like a grassroots thing and everybody kind of knows everybody a little bit more. Mm -hmm. I imagine it's a very different character than when it gets big. And, um, and then I I've heard, you know, like Bina and some other people talking about Philly bike expo, like trying not to lose your connection to where you started and the roots and the community and, you know, wanting to grow it to the extent that it makes sense so that everybody can enjoy the party without, without like changing the character of the party that it's no longer what you really wanted. Right. Well, obviously that is the challenge. <laughs> yeah. So, so far so good. Yeah, no, it's an amazing show. And so it's just around the corner is the time that we're recording this. And, um, I hope everybody mm-hmm. listening has their plans uh, if they can possibly make it to come out to the Philly Bike Expo and see a bunch of cool bikes, meet a bunch of cool people. I've made some really good friends, uh, personal friends at the show, and I've definitely gotten to meet a lot of people in the bike industry that I wouldn't have met otherwise. So, uh, you know, if you're listening to this podcast, I think that stuff applies to you and you should definitely uh, make it out uh, to the show because it's, it's great. And So anyway, um, I really appreciate you taking the time to be on the call and uh, – uh, yeah, I'll see you at the show. All right. Thanks for the opportunity. And uh, yeah, see you in a week. Yeah, talk soon. Bye. <laughs> okay, bye.